Welcome to Substance Free O2043, brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm your host, Kristen Root, and I'm President and Program Director of Hingham Cares. Our mission is to reduce substance use among youth in our community. We want our kids to make healthy choices around drugs and alcohol. To that end, we bring educational programming into the schools and offer information to the community at large about the inherent risks associated with underage substance use. Our guest today is an expert in the field of emerging drug trends. We're delighted to have Officer Jermaine Galloway join us virtually for an important conversation about how we can keep our kids safe and healthy around substances. Thank you, Jermaine, for being with us today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So you go by the moniker Tall Cop. I've been to an in-person workshop that you held several years ago, so I know the answer to this question already, and it's probably pretty obvious as well. But where did you get that nickname? Uh, well, it's kind of funny. I was tall. I was a police officer and I am tall. I wasn't was tall. I am tall. I'm six foot nine and I was in law enforcement for 18 years. So most people didn't remember my real name and still don't to today. I mean, I have people <laughs> who come to any of my classes and they go, hey, you're the tall cop, but they couldn't tell you what my first name is for anything. <laughs> so um, it just kind of stuck. It just kind of, it just kind of stuck together. And now nationally, that's what I'm known as. And I'll, I mean, I walked in, I was, uh, I was in Mexico. This was last year with my wife. I'm in Mexico. I walk in a restaurant. Someone goes, hey, tall cop. They held it from across the restaurant. So, I mean, it's just funny how now it, it has taken off on its own. That's great. Well, it certainly sets you apart. That's for sure. Thank you. So you've been working to combat drug and alcohol abuse problems in communities for decades. Um, but before we jump into the things that you've seen over the course of your career and what you're currently seeing, I was hoping that we could get to know you a little bit better first. And you just mentioned that you've been in law enforcement. You um, worked in Idaho law enforcement for a number of years, correct, before moving to Texas. Could you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah. So I grew up in California. Um, then I played college basketball, make a long story short. That's what took me to Idaho was my last year. I played basketball at a little NAIA school in Idaho. I transferred from division one to an NAIA school in Idaho. And then ultimately I stayed. I always wanted to get in law enforcement. So I stayed in Idaho and ended up staying there for 23 years, counting my one year that I played ball there. So I was there for 23 years. And during that 23 year period, 18 of those years were in law enforcement. So I started working at a local restaurant to get in until I got into law enforcement, testing, things like that, got into law enforcement, did that for 18 years and ultimately left on great terms. I, I left on my own because I started training and my training kind of grew and grew and grew to the point where I had two full-time jobs. So I had to pick one. I, I was fortunate and blessed enough that I had to pick a job I had to, and I liked both of my careers. So, but it made it easy. Do I work for somebody else or do I work for myself? So I, I ended up just full-time training and that was at the end of 2015, beginning of 2016. And I've been doing full-time training ever since. So I've been training since about 02, but and I started my company in 07, but full-time heavily on the road for about eight or nine years. And you do trainings in schools, you do trainings with uh, law enforcement, what does your training schedule look like? I'm in two to three states a week. I travel more than anybody you know. So uh, <laughs> I don't travel as much internationally as I do a little bit. Like I have training coming up in Canada later this year. But um, I'm in about two to three states a week. Last week was, let's see, it was Ohio, Virginia, Indiana, I think were last week. I train in about 35 states a year. Some of those states I go to 
Michigan, New York, place like that, Indiana, five to 10 times a year. So I'll be there and I'll be back there in two weeks. And then I'm back there a few months later. Then sometimes I do four trainings in a week there that are spread all across the state. Um, I train any and everybody who has to deal with drugs. So if you deal with drugs, mental health, communities, parents, treatment, law enforcement, judges, courts, probation, if you deal with drugs, I train you. So the number is about 80,000 people a year. So I, I train a lot. That's really incredible. I would imagine that one of the most challenging things in your line of work when you're traveling around the country like that is staying on top of trends that are taking place regionally, state by state. Does that prove to be a little bit of a challenge for you? Not really, um, because because of my travel, um, instead of giving people a canned presentation, I create my presentation for every group I'm talking to. So last week I would have had three different trainings because I've put in the demographics. Are we in rural America or am I in Boston? I mean, you have to account for that. Am I in Boston or am I in, you know, San Diego, California? I mean, we all see the same drugs, but the trends do alter based off region, population, accessibility, financial accessibility. So I, I alter my training for who I'm talking to. And by doing that, I also do community scans. I go into stores in all of your states. Um, I go into your shopping malls, I go into your smoke shops, I go into cannabis dispensaries, I go in all these places and I have for 20 years. And a big part of it is I have a pretty good idea what I'm gonna find, although I do find new stuff. Last week, I was also in Louisiana and I walk into a store in rural Louisiana, a town population of 8,000 people. And I find drugs that I haven't found in large cities that have populations of 2,000 people. In, in this little shop that's barely larger than this office I'm sitting in right now, this shop had so many different products, it was truly unbelievable. And it had a drive-through window. So as I'm standing there talking to the clerk, and I call it interviews, interviewing the clerk, people are buying drugs at the drive-up window, but it's all legal substances. But it's legal substances that work like illegal drugs. So that allows me to be caught up because now I can tell you in Massachusetts, we see this. Compared to Louisiana, we see this. Compared to New Orleans, we see this. Compared to rural Louisiana, and I've done it for 20 years. So I can tell you what's going on in regions of the country. I can tell you price points. I can tell you availability. I can share all that with you because I spent so many time, so much time in all of your states and I spend time in this environment in all of your states. Well, they say that the more things change, the more they stay the same. So to the point that you were just making that some of the trends may be different, the drugs may be different, but there are definitely some commonalities there. What have you seen over the course of your career or, or recently that's new nationwide or new regionally and what things have remained constant? A lot of things, even the constants have evolved, I would say, is a better way to put that, like your cannabis products. We've evolved from leaf to dab wax and concentrates, and now the concentrates are continuing to evolve because price points are dropping and you have more states that are legalizing cannabis, so you have more dispensaries. Mm -hmm. So even though the product's been there, it's evolving as potency is rising too. But one of the most common trend shifts that I've seen over the last few years would really be your legal forms of heroin. I, I think that's a big one I spent a lot of time teaching on. We have products sold in all states. Now, some states have banned some products, but federally, no one has banned all of them, really. So we have products that work like heroin or other opioids that do not test like heroin or other opioids, meaning you take drug tests, you pass many of them. Um, but get you high and can be addictive and you can and can be fatal that are being sold in gas stations and even in our shopping malls. 
across the U.S. So one of the things I'm seeing are basically called heroin alternatives. You know, it's kind of like saying you drink Coke or Pepsi and we ban those. So you start drinking Mountain Dew. And that's right. basically what, what's happening. Um, and they're being sold everywhere. We're, I'm finding them everywhere. I'm finding them in rural America. I'm finding them in urban America. I'm finding them uh, low price point, $7. I mean, it's, it's pretty crazy. And these are cannabis products? No, those are opioid products that work like drugs like heroin and or that work well with heroin too. So there's a couple of different ways to look at that. When we talk about underage use of substances, either legal substances like alcohol or illicit substances like uh, cocaine, for example, are there different ways of addressing those when it comes to underage use specifically? Is your message the same? Is there Are there unique messagings depending upon the substance that's being discussed? Yeah, it, it depends on the substance and the age group you're talking to. Um, I just finished a podcast right before you, and then I just finished a webinar this morning that I had um, about 200 people on from probably 30 different states. When you talk to kids, there are certain things kids are going to learn about no matter what. Fentanyl, cannabis, alcohol, vapes. So as a parent, you don't need to worry. be worried about talking about those topics because your kids are going to learn about those drugs by middle school and up. They will know, they will be familiar with all four of those. So now you don't have to worry about that. Now, a heroin alternative, like I just made a reference to in your gas station, yeah, you might not want to talk to them about that because you might have just told your child, hey, we have $7, $8 heroin being sold down the street. So you don't want to share that per se, unless maybe they expressed interest or told you that they know about it. But for some of these others, yeah, you, you want to alter your training or education based on knowledge level, grade, grade level, and what's available in your area, too. You know, if you live in an area that crack cocaine is really not non-existent in your area, then maybe that's not what you start talking about first. You talk about other things, but when they're in high school, maybe you do talk about it because your kids are going to head off to college. I mean, so it all just really depends. Um, you know, you can't have one standardized training that works for the masses. It, it right. doesn't work like that. If you have someone that gives the same training to you, same training to a group that's 4,000 people, same training to rural America, it's 30,000, same training to all the states, that one training is not going to affect everybody and everyone's not going to resonate with that. And you're going to have some people sitting in class looking, going, that's big cities, that's not us. Right. If you spend all your time saying, this is what Walmart sells and this is what shopping malls, you have people in class going, close to shopping malls, three hours away, close to Walmart, 60 miles away. That's not us. This isn't a problem I have then. And that's, they're going to turn you off. Right. You want to really be uh, addressing things in a way that resonates with everybody. What are some popular misconceptions that people have about youth substance use? Yeah, that it's a phase and they're going to grow out of it. That it's not a big deal. Kids will be kids. A big one is I did it also. So therefore... Look at me, I'm fine. And I agree with many parents. You are doing well. You are highly successful. You do look from outside, what I can see, very healthy, mentally, physically, all of it. Your kids are not doing the same drug you are. You were drinking, a, you were sipping on a beer and they were, they're taking shots of distilled spirits. That's the equivalent I give people. So the name of a drug is the name. The actual drug has evolved over 5, 10, and 50 years. So your kids did not do the same drug you did because we have better technology today and our drugs are stronger and better today. So they simply did not. If you did it 20 years ago and they're doing it today, you did not do the same drug. Nothing is the same it was 20 years ago. So there's that and kids will be kids and they'll just grow out of it. As you guys watch the news media and you see all the addiction we are seeing on our streets and you see the deaths on our streets and you see the overdoses in our schools and you see the deaths in our schools. Does it look like people are growing out of it? Right. So 
you know, I, I would say I'm growing out of it. Addiction, you don't just grow out of addiction. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. So um, that misconception parents have, all kids are going to grow out of it. Some are, some are not. Walk outside your doors and take a look and tell me if it looks like people are growing out of it or not. In your experience, what role do ACEs play in child, in, in youth substance use? So ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. Okay. Do those factor into youth substance use at all in your experience, or is it does it go beyond that? Everything, and, and that's a really good question. I haven't asked that in a long time. Um, that is a really good question. Everything factors into child substance abuse, and it factors into why your kids won't use also. So everything factors in. Uh, let me give you an example I give a lot of people. So you have a parent that's a heavy drug user, and that parent has had failed marriages. That parent is a pretty abusive parent. That parent is just someone their child doesn't particularly like or care for. Just by how poorly they treat people, they're overdosed, they're passed out on the floor, they've been transported to hospital multiple times, they're suffering from addiction, they have you know really poor relationships, there's domestic violence going on. Generally, you're gonna see your kids go one of two ways. They're gonna look at that parent and say, I don't wanna be anything like them, and they're not gonna touch a thing. You could offer them money to do it, and they refuse because they say, I don't want to be anything like that. I grew up in this environment. I am not going to treat my kids like that, and I am so far from this. I am going to not get anywhere close to it. And then you see the other side where now it becomes generational, and that child, the cycle continues and grows up just like that parent and then treats their kids the same way, and that child. And I tell people we have to break the cycle. So with that, everything affects Youth substance abuse, positive and negative, whether your kids will use or won't use, everything does. Who they hang out with or the circles they run in, social media. Parents, don't forget about that. There's plenty of social media experts that tell you your child shouldn't have a, shouldn't have a cell phone with apps till they're 13 or 14 or 15. So, but we see kids who are nine years old running around with cell phones with apps, right? So social media plays into that. Um, environment in the house plays into it. Everything does. It's a multifaceted approach. There's not just one thing that can make you successful. There's not just one thing that can make it fail. It's everything. It's it's a combination of everything, and can, being continual too. Is this con, is this cycle continuing and continuing to grow? For parents, that's kind of what you want to look at. There's no one perfect way, you know, to kind of finish this answer for you here. I tell parents. If two plus two equal four in the drug world, we would tell you that we'd write a book and we'd hand you the pamphlet and say, hmm. you followed it, you're good. Doesn't work like that. Doesn't work like that. When I heard you present several years ago, I think it was in 2016, actually, 2016, 2017, you were talking specifically about marijuana and marijuana had recently been legalized for recreational use in Massachusetts. And it was incredibly informational for those of us who were um, just starting to get to know the substance, the, the modern version of the substance. And one thing that you said um, that, that really struck me was that, and I'm hope, I hope I'm getting this quote right, but you said something to the effect of former heroin users have said that modern day marijuana products are more potent than heroin. So yes, and here's what I mean by that. We have had former drug users of not just heroin, methamphetamine users, all of it, and not necessarily talk about the potency of it, but the withdrawals of it. We have had drug users who use other substances, and not all of them, just like anything in the drug world. Some people could try heroin today and walk away from it. Some say that was the best euphoria I've ever had, right? Mm. 
Some have worse withdrawals than others. I mean, there's so many factors into that. So you, again, you can't throw a blanket over everything. But what we've had many people say is the withdrawals were actually worse than other drugs I've done. Whether it's heroin, whether it's meth, what have you, the withdrawals were actually worse. So now are they saying to a T it was worse? Maybe not, but they're making a point. They're saying this isn't yesterday's weed. The withdrawals were significant for me. Um, physical dependence, mental dependence was significant. That's basically the point that I generally from those conversations take from it that they're highlighting. It's significant. It wasn't just a, it's just weed. What's the big deal? But when you look at potency, you know, if you smoked weed 25 years ago, you're smoking 8%, 10%, where today you could be smoking 96%. It does make sense, these statements that are being made, and depending on how frequently they're using and their dependence on the drug, any drug you use that's at high potency levels, because let me give you a good example. I am getting some of those similar comments from people who are vaping. So from people who have used other drugs and gone through withdrawals from other drugs that we consider to be hard drugs who said, it was just as hard for me to get off vape pens. I couldn't get off vaping. Wow. So we are hearing some of those same statements with that too. And they're saying the same exact thing. Their dependence is so strong on the drug that people need to stop looking at this stuff as just a weak substance. That, that's the point they're making. Right, right. That's definitely a popular misconception. Anytime we talk about marijuana, the changes in marijuana, it's always very interesting to see how few people are familiar with it. They're They're completely unfamiliar with how marijuana has changed over the past 10, 15, even five years. Um, so that's something that we want to draw attention to with parents. I think uh, two substances in particular that are problematic here in our community, and I'm sure you see this nationwide, are alcohol and marijuana. Those are the two most commonly used substances among teens, um, and they're certainly the most commonly abused substances among teens here in, um, in our community. And and yet at the same time, they're the ones that are seen as the most benign to a certain extent by parents. So, you know, in helping parents understand not just the changes that have taken place in, in the marijuana industry and in the marijuana products that are out there, but also helping them understand why teen use is so different from adult use. We know so much more about the developing teen brain. Can you touch on that a little bit? Yeah, so you could have two individuals. Let's say I have a male who's six foot two, um, 180 or six, foot, or six foot nine. Or six foot nine, <laughs> 180 pounds. And, and I did, it's funny. I went into a store the other day. I walk in and this kid, 16 years old, he was an inch taller than me. I was looking up at him. Oh, uh, that was his last week. Anyways, um, so yeah, so you could have a male six foot nine, 200 pounds, 16 year old, like the, the kid who I saw in the store the other day with his dad. Or you could have me who's almost 50 years old and a six foot nine also, right? With that being said, we could be the same height, same weight and everything. That 16 year old who I saw in the store the other day, he's still developing, his body's developing, his brain's developing. Drugs will impact him more than they will me. Now, it doesn't mean that I still can't overdose off a drug and it doesn't mean that I won't still have physical or mental dependence or anything like that off a drug. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it's gonna impact him significantly more generally as a rule of thumb. So first for parents, there are parents who smoke cannabis. There are parents who go, I don't care if my kid smokes weed. It works fine for me and I'm high functioning and I make a ton of money and I'm very successful in my job and I work harder than anyone. I'm up at five o'clock in the morning. I work till midnight. And there's a lot of truth to that. But it is impacting your child differently and your child is now starting with a form of a drug that's stronger than anything you ever did. So they are not starting with what you started with 40 years ago that that's impact on your brain was gonna be a lot lighter 
than what their impact on theirs is. They're, you started here and they're starting here. And then they're going to go up from there. So they're, I mean, just in a nutshell, early onset of schizophrenia. What about increased depression? You hear about people smoking weed because of depression. What about increased depression? We know studies have shown for some people, elements of society, it increases, it potentiates the depression they have, right? So there are so many things. We know for some people, there's a thing called um, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, CHS syndrome. It causes nausea. You hear a lot about cannabis to reduce nausea. It causes nausea for certain people in society. It might for me and not for you or for you and not for me. I mean, so there's so many things out there that um, sometimes we get ourselves in a bad spot because we go, it's fine for everybody. Nothing is fine for the masses. Nothing right. is fine for everybody. That's why when you go to a doctor, the doctor says, hey, I'm gonna prescribe you penicillin. Have you ever had negative side effects to it? Because yeah, it generally works for most people. Some people have negative side effects to it. I'm gonna prescribe you this opioid. Have you ever had negative side effects? Most people don't, some people do. Nothing works for the masses, whether it's prescribed or through street-level drug culture. So you got to keep that in mind. So when it comes to everything that you were just saying about, you know, potential with penicillin, potential with different opioids, with painkillers, we talk about the risks associated with youth, sub youth substance use. So we're not saying that every child who has a shot of vodka is going to become an alcoholic Correct. but exactly but the the danger is there the risks are there the proclivity is there because of the underdeveloped brain correct and and we know that every child who tries a drug is not going to become addicted because imagine how many kids have tried a drug and what addiction would actually look like if if those numbers did come to fruition right, right. so we know that that's not the case but when you're as a parent and you're talking about reduction of substances, you need to play the probabilities. That's really what you're trying to do. You're just trying to play the numbers. If I can reduce this, it reduces the likelihood of A, B, and C happening. And that's what you're really looking at. Now, for some of the kids, A, B, and C is not gonna happen no matter what you do. But for some of them, it is. Hence why, again, I use the example a lot. What does it look like when you walk outside the doors? Does it look like substances are getting better? Does it, are you seeing less overdoses in schools? Are you hearing about less aggression in schools? Are you hearing about less depression in schools? Are you feeling like our kids are healthier than they were just five years ago? Mm -hmm. All right. So as you look at some of those questions, then you, then most people say, no, I don't feel like our kids or society as a whole is healthier than it was five years ago. So if that's your answer, then take a step back and say, what has changed in the last five years that I think society is less healthy when we talk substances? And that's what you really want to start looking at because cause and effect. If this changes, that changes, right? So it's the same thing. And at some point, we will get healthier again, hopefully. I, I do believe it'll happen. As a society, then we have to ask ourselves a question. What has changed to where we are now getting healthier as a community? So, you know, you, you don't have to listen to the experts. You don't have to read data. Just use your common sense, walk outside your doors and see what you think and try to figure out why. Why why do you think things have changed? And you'll probably come to some answers that I probably would have come to also. Just recently, I read an article that I don't recall the the official name for this particular drug, but it's a horse tranquilizer that's being yeah. used re used recreationally. How widespread is that? Are there other types of substance? We hear about fentanyl all the time, carfentanyl, mm -hmm. and the concerns that, that we have over health risks associated with those substances. What other sort of new and different things are you seeing on the front lines? 
Yeah, so the one you're talking about is called xylazine. X-Y-L-A-Z-I-N-E is how it's spelled. And with xylazine, it's an animal tranquilizer. Um, xylazine has never been studied for human consumption. It is used on animals. It's used on dogs, cats to be fixed. You, It's used on cows to be sedated. Um, it's on anything. I, I've had ranchers tell me they use it and they say it works really well. Sedates my cow for 30 minutes and then I can do what I need to do. If there's a procedure I need to do on the cow, then everything's fine. So with xylazine, it's never been studied in humans, but what it does is it's a drug potentiator. And a drug potentiator is a drug that spikes the high of other drugs. So xylazine actually spikes the high of heroin and they're cutting it into fentanyl, meaning adding it to fentanyl. It spikes the high of fentanyl. But here's the kind of the curveball with xylazine. It reduces the effectiveness of Narcan. So Narcan, opioid reversal drug, works on opioids. Xylazine is a depressant, but it's not an opioid. So it reduces the effectiveness of Narcan. So when fentanyl and xylazine are both present together and you administer Narcan on somebody, it hits the fentanyl, it does not hit the xylazine. So what's happening is some of those people are still dying and they're not reversing because it's not reversing the effects of both drugs that are present. So, and you're in the Northeast, that's why you're hearing about so much. You guys were the ones that raised the red flag saying, we got a problem here um, to the rest of us, but we're seeing it all across the country. For instance, Dallas, Tuesday evening, in two different regions of Dallas, of the city, Dallas about a million people, so two different regions of Dallas had 27 drug overdoses on Tuesday night alone. Wow. So that means someone brought a drug into that area, someone or someones, and was dealing it, and three of those people died. So you have to assume many of those people who were using the drug probably had a tolerance to opioids, had probably used it before. I, I don't know all the details on everyone, but you can assume most did and several still died. And those were the 27 were the ones we know about. That doesn't count someone who went home and was administered Narcan maybe at home and did reverse, right? So they didn't call the police or share that data. And I'm very confident a drug like xylazine, I have no insider information, but just seeing what we're seeing, I'm very confident a drug like xylazine was probably present. That, that you, you don't see numbers like that. Something caused that. And these are right. probably people who had a tolerance to it anyways. So yes, you're seeing drugs like xylazine and what I call other potentiators, drugs that spike the high of heroin or drugs that work like heroin and people are using to get around drug testing because uh, there's several out there that work like it, but we'll get you around drug testing standards too. So yes, we're seeing quite a bit of that. So you've worked with leaders in many fields. Is there anything that we can be doing from a law enforcement perspective, legislatively, within the religious community, or you know anything locally that can affect change? What do you see as the most the best instrument for change? Yeah, one of the easy steps is banning some of these drugs. Um, banning does not stop drug use. Because again, heroin is banned. That's my best example. Heroin is banned and we are in a heroin epidemic, now a fentanyl epidemic. So banning does not stop drug use, but banning reduces youth accessibility. Um, I mentioned on a webinar earlier today, because it was mostly a youth-based webinar, and I said this, there's two things that you see for kids who use drugs, accessibility and price points. Mm -hmm. Kids buy cheaper drugs. Price points drop, kids buy them. It's more accessible, kids get them. So when you look at banning drugs, it usually does two things. It sends the price up, okay, which is gonna now start to price kids out of the market, but also it reduces their accessibility. Yeah, people are still gonna sell it. They're gonna sell it underground. They're gonna sell it under the counter. They're still gonna do that, but I can't just walk into a Massachusetts gas station and buy it. So that does reduce 
some of that. So looking at a city level, city level, county level, state level of banning drugs, we don't have to wait for every drug to be banned federally. You can ban stuff at a state level. So looking at things to be banned there, continuing your education, helping schools with policies. Our schools are overrun and they're overwhelmed. Remember, schools are still recovering from COVID. Schools are losing teachers. We have teachers quitting. So schools are having staffing shortages also, like you're seeing with hospitals and law enforcement. And then now schools are being handed a whole drug epidemic too, on top of all of that which means depression, anxiety, aggression, self-harm, suicidal thoughts, they're being handed all this too. So schools, I mean, are, are in a tough spot right now. So with that, what can we be doing to helping our schools? Getting more counselors in there. When these schools bonds are coming up that some people say, well, I don't see a need for that. It's not school's problem. Well, we have to take a step back and say, is this gonna help our children? And are some of these things gonna help our children? And giving our schools more resources too, and giving some of our parents who don't have the resources or the means to get resources, giving them some options. Um, just last week, I won't say it was state, I was in one of my classes, they're having high levels of substance abuse in their community, very high levels of it. But their community socioeconomic level was very low. So they talked to me about the size of their county and their resources they're giving at one geographical location. I asked them a question. I said, are you doing that in the other side of the county also? Because for many of us, we sit back and go, okay, we'll drive an hour and get our kids there, but every parent does not have that availability and you have single parent households too. So in this group had already thought all this through and they said, yep, and we're trying to coordinate something where we're getting a vehicle where we can go get people and bring them to it. So they had already thought all this through, but this is stuff we have to be thinking through also. Everybody doesn't have the availability to maybe get their kids to places they need to be to get them the help that they need. So really thinking outside the box of what else can we be doing to get people the resources who don't have the means to get those resources. So we are really looking forward to having you come to Hingham and do a training here for us locally on Friday, May 19th in the morning at Town Hall. So we're excited to be able to publicize that. We're going to use the podcast to help publicize that and inform people on who you are. Not just a tall cop, you actually have a lot to say about a lot of different things. So, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get a good turnout for that. Um, but one thing that I'd like to close every interview with is two questions. One is asking the person that I'm talking with, do you have any advice for parents in particular? And then the other is, do you have any advice for teens, obviously around substance use? Sure, so let's start with parents. Every child does not use drugs. Most kids do not use drugs, and we'll talk about that with teens in a second too. Parents, keep your heads up. It's frustrating. I'm a parent, it's frustrating for all of us. It doesn't mean everything's crashing and burning. It's not that. But for the ones who are using, it is worse and it is getting significantly worse. And unfortunately, it's gonna get worse next year too. But keep your heads up and stay active. Be the parent. It's not, number one, I don't think it's society's job to be your to be the parent, but also if you expect society to raise your kids, they're gonna let you down and really disappoint you. Raise your kids, do your job. And that doesn't mean knowing everything. That just means being able to ask for help and, and look where you need to look. And for kids, it's the same thing. Everybody doesn't use drugs. Sometimes it looks like it, but I, you know, I'll ask the teens, is that because that's who your social network is? If I hang around with just drug users, it's gonna look like to me, everybody's using drugs. If I hang around with non-drug users, I'm gonna think, I don't think that many kids use drugs. It kind of depends on who, what apps are you on? What shows do you watch? What music do you listen to? Who do you hang out with? If, if it's all drug related, it's gonna kind of feel like everybody's using drugs. So with that in mind, um, Everybody's not using drugs. We know that the data shows that. And, and we're not gonna use scare tactics. We know everybody doesn't die from using drugs. But boy, we have a lot of people that do, 
And it's not just about living or dying. There's a bunch of stuff in the middle that happens too. There's a bunch of stuff that sends you into more depression. There's a bunch of stuff that makes day in, day out seem unbearable. There's a bunch of stuff that makes you more angry and more frustrated. There's a bunch of stuff that raises your blood pressure and your heart rate, which can lead you into cardiac arrest from using other drugs. It's not just about living and dying. There's a bunch of stuff in the middle that happens too. That doesn't get a lot of talk, but you need to be very well aware of also. That's fantastic advice. Thank you guys. You have been listening to Substance Free 02043 brought to you by Hingham Cares. I'm Kristen Root, your host, and I hope that you will join us again. For more info or to get involved, go to hinghamcares.org.